Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Sarah Munder. And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 488 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, Stephanie talks with Sean Jardine about implementing value-based pricing in a law firm. Today's podcast is brought to you by Omnizen, and you'll hear Zach's conversation with them at the beginning of the episode. So, Zach, we've got some exciting things coming up this year, and I know it's that time of year when Tech Show is coming. Oh, yeah. And I'm still not quite sure if I am personally going or not, but the lawyer's team is always there. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, maybe you could convince me to, you know, consider it. Do you have any thoughts on what Tech Show is going to be like this year or what to expect? Yeah, so Tech Show is coming up in a week or so in Chicago, where it usually is. And Honestly, they haven't at the time of recording, they haven't put out the exact agenda just yet. So I don't know, you know, exactly what CLEs I'm going to go to or or what I'm going to watch. But as always, they have a really, really good set of speakers that are going to be there. So you can go to the Tech Show's website, maybe a Tech Show's website and see all of them. But I expect that we're going to see a lot of AI focused things. Tech Show usually has very practical practice management and you know how to use technology in your law office talks but i think we're probably going to see a good deal of artificial intelligence talks i i know well i know we are stephanie's speaking on artificial intelligence in your law office we have a couple of people from you know from lawyerist and from affinity consulting group at large that are speaking there baron henley is usually speaking and he's he's a wealth of information on how to use Word and document automation and management and things like that in your law office. So if you're looking for really good tips on how to how to be a high quality, high end user of Microsoft Word, Baron is is your guy. He's the one you're going to want to go see. So, yeah, I, I expect there's going to be a lot of good stuff there this year. Cool. Well, for those who are listening, if you're considering going, if if you go, you'll get some value out of it for sure. And you will definitely see the uh, the lawyerist and affinity team there. So make sure you swing on by and say hi. And we would love to catch up with you and talk about what's going on in your firm. Yeah, we'll be running around in lawyerist shirts. So if you see any of us, obviously, you know, yell at us or speak softly to us, whichever way is, <laughs> is comfortable for you. I, I don't really prefer getting yelled at, but, you know, it happens. I just had an idea. Do you think that they would let us come with like one of those t-shirt guns where we could just, because I get asked for <laughs> lawyers t-shirts at Tech Show every time. And I was thinking, we're going to be in our shirts. Can we bring one of those? I'm just kind of like. I think that might be, as they say, below the dignity of the court. It I might be a little Stephanie bit much. I could see Stephanie up there, for... you know. She's yeah, doing her yeah, thing just and she just makes Shooting it t-shirts into the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people will have to go and see her her talk to see if we were able to put that together. Well. There you go. You don't want to miss that. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, speaking of her talking, here is Stephanie's conversation with Sean. 
Hey y'all, it's Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyerist. And today I'd like to talk to you about Lawyer SEO. I'm joined by Emily Brady, the director of SEO at Omnizen, a full service digital marketing agency that helps growth focused firms build powerful websites and effective client generation campaigns. Emily, thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Emily, let's jump right into it. We were talking about unique SEO challenges that law firms have, and you were telling me about some specific things. What are some unique things that lawyers need to think about? Sure. Yeah. So I've been doing SEO for lawyers for about 12 years now, if my math mm-hmm. is correct. And there's a couple specific challenges that I have noticed during that time that are pretty much almost entirely unique to law firms. Right. One of the biggest ones, and I think the most interesting ones, is that Google does not fully understand how law firms work as local businesses. (laughs) (laughs) Google doesn't understand lawyers. Yes. Yes. That's what I hear. Got it. This one, this one's, this one's on Google, but I will, I will hopefully I'll explain myself and then provide some solutions for this one because it is, it's a, it's a really interesting and unique challenge that basically Google treats law firms as local businesses, which Mm -hmm. means that proximity is a huge part of how Google ranks local businesses. Right. And with that comes this challenge of what about law firms that serve a much larger geographic area than Google views them as relevant for? Oh, yeah. My firm, actually, we service the entire state of Tennessee, but we were located in a small city called Gallatin. You know, yeah. Exactly. And that's that's kind of one of those classic cases, right? Like maybe your home base is in a smaller city, but you serve a mm-hmm. much larger area. And that can be truly challenging. Even if you think about case types that might take you into other states or mm-hmm. anywhere in the country, right. that's going to be it's going to be difficult to rank because Google is still looking at the business as a local business. So right. There are a couple factors and I guess solutions here if we want to dive into if we want to dive into how to fix yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's let's definitely you know touch a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, there are a couple things you can do. One of them is to have an on-site strategy that's going to actually mirror your real service area. So, on-site being on my website. On your website. Okay. Yeah. So, that's going to be a content strategy. Having okay. pages of content that let people know and people and search engines know that mm-hmm. you do serve a larger area. Hey, we're okay. located here, but we serve these states. These are the types of cases that we take there. Mm-hmm. So providing that information is a great first step. In my experience, it's still challenging to rank in those areas because right. those pages are competing with local businesses that are local to the area you're targeting. Right. That have an office actually in that location. Exactly. So, you know, that kind of brings me to my next solution, which is be strategic about where your offices are located. Mm. And if you're really, really struggling to rank well in a geographic location where you are are not, then, then contemplate opening another an office there if you can, because that having a Google listing in a specific city is one of the most surefire ways to demonstrate your relevance for ranking in that city in the maps. And also it can help your website as well. So actually getting an office is Mm -hmm. going to be perhaps the largest investment, but also the most concrete solution. And then complement that obviously with your content and your, your website strategy too. I think the third solution here is not an SEO solution per se. And like, I, I am a huge fan of SEO. So, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. if I'm recommending something that's not SEO, you know, you know, it's real, <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's good advice, <laughs> but also in those geographic areas, have a, have a really strong marketing mix. Like 
maybe paid ads mm. is going to help you get that visibility initially to see if it's even worth opening an office there eventually. So, right. you know, be strategic about having using other channels, organic. I'm a huge fan. Yes, organic is wonderful. It can pay you back in dividends over time. But, you know, at the end of the day, if Google doesn't understand that you're relevant in that specific city or state, then ads may be able to help you accomplish that. So, yeah, I, th- I think those are probably the three ways that I would confront that particular issue. The good news is your competitors are in the same boat that you are most often and more often than not. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Unique to law firms, but not unique to your law firm. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. The big thing there, though, I think is knowing that it's an issue as well. And so along those lines, what are some of the other issues that we have as lawyers? Yeah, another another really, really big one is the fact that people don't want to leave reviews for law firms very often. It's hard to get reviews. <laughs> they may want to leave bad reviews. <laughs> Maybe, but... but <laughs> I hope you don't have a lot of people that want to leave bad reviews. But yeah, yeah. And people don't necessarily want to say, hey, this guy helped me get out of a DUI. Exactly. Or, you know, I, I had drug charges and, uh, you know, I got off with two days in jail or whatever. Or even family law or, you know, civil law and, and all that. Yeah. So we need to have a good systematic way of trying to get those reviews because they are still very important with Google as well. Definitely, especially for those local rankings, because that's how your Google listing is going to be viewed as more relevant. So ask for reviews, even though it's tough and people don't want to do it. And then also respond to reviews when, when you do get them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Make those reviews as, as good and, and robust as possible. Okay. We've got time for probably a, a last one. What's the third thing? Yeah, a third one. And this one, again, everyone's kind of in the same boat, maybe for different reasons. But finally, SEO for attorneys is super competitive. And Mm. it's easy to say that, but there is a specific reason. And that's because the legal industry as a whole was a very early adopter of search engine optimization. So there are firms out there that have been doing this for a really, really long time. And that makes it competitive, uh, especially in those, you know, large metropolitan areas. But even elsewhere. It's, it's just competitive. People have websites that have been around for a long time and they've been doing SEO for a long time, mm-hmm. which is a challenge, right? If you're a new firm and you don't have that relevance and authority in Google's eyes yet, it takes a little bit of time to build it up and you're going up against firms that may have been investing for longer. Mm-hmm. Along those same lines though, if you are one of those firms that's been investing for longer, it probably means that you have some outdated SEO on your website too. So it's kind of a, you know, there's two there's two sides to that coin. <laughs> it can be, it can be good and bad. Need to be thinking about it one way or the other. Absolutely. Exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Emily, I think that's all we have the the time for today, but I appreciate you being with me. And if people want to learn more about how Omnizent can help with these issues, they can go to Omnizent.com and that's O-M-N-I-Z-A-N-T.com. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Emily, again, thank you for being with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me here. Hello, Stephanie, and thank you very much for having me onto your podcast today. My name is Sean Jardine. I am the owner of a limited company in the UK called The Big Yellow Penguin. My background is I am a solicitor, a non-practicing solicitor, I have to say these days. And I am the former CEO of a top 200 law firm, which I was at for a number of years. But in October 20. 21. I retired from private practice, started up my consultancy called The Big Yellow Penguin, and I'm on a mission to try and ditch the billable hour from the legal profession. I love it because 
as you know, that is a mission that is near and dear to my heart. Everyone listening who's been a listener for any amount of time of this show knows that I also want to ditch the billable hour. I think it's a worthy cause. So (laughs) kudos to you. And you just actually published a new book titled Ditch the Billable Hour. I have. I have. I'm delighted to say it is being printed as we speak and um, it gets to the distributors on Monday. So in in three or four days time. So yeah, I'm very, very excited about it. Well, great. It'll be out by the time this episode drops. So we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. And I'd love to just explore a little bit more because in the book, you suggest that it's time for law firms to ditch the billable hour and I think primarily focus on what's known as value pricing. Do I have that right? That's it. Let's not price our legal services based on the time it takes us to do anything. Let's actually look at our clients, look at the work, look at the value we bring when we're actually doing legal work and seek to get some of that value as well. Yeah. I mean, look, you don't have to convince me, but if there's any people who have doubts out there, what are your biggest frustrations with the billable hour? The first thing is it doesn't align with client objectives. When clients instruct lawyers, they don't want to pay more than they have to. When we're billed by the hour, we have got an incentive to drag it, drag things out for as long as possible. So we're immediately aren't lined up together. So if you're the worst lawyer in the world and you've got a client who is paying by the billable hour, you can earn a fortune because you're not very good. It takes you a long time to do everything. And the client will is going to pay for that billable hour. But I think one of the other things that frustrates me about it is more to do with our profession, I'm afraid. And that is, it takes the pace of change and decision-making by lawyers sometimes is glacial. And over here, we have high court judges, master of the roles we have, what a law lord. And one of our law lords, was talking about the billable hour in a judgment, or sorry, in a speech that he gave at a conference. And he was talking about how it rewards bad practice, et cetera, et cetera. So he was calling this out, but he was calling it out 12 years ago. And we still are not actually doing anything about it. If you say to a client, look, my hourly rate is X. And I saw in the legal press the other day that one law firm in the States is their hourly rate is now $2,500 an hour. And as soon as you say to your client, this is my hourly rate, your clients hear a number that frightens them and they think, how long is this going to take? If you say to a client, I understand your issues, what I can do is offer you three price points. I can offer you a gold, silver, bronze price point, and they're all different. And what I, the way I deliver the service is different. It goes from Will I work to you with you at all? To which option do I want to take? The other thing that frustrates me about it is that they don't really understand maths very well. And so that if I say, look, it's an hourly rate, take it or leave it. If it's an hourly rate, take it or leave it, it's a 50-50. If I give you gold, silver, bronze or leave it, it's a 75-25. So actually, I've got three chances of selling you a service, gold, silver, bronze, or leave it. So actually the maths is in favor of creating options for clients. So let's do it. Yeah, I love that. Something else you said in your book, and I just loved this framing because it was a little bit different than what I had heard before, is when you offer a value-based pricing, 
everyone in the law firm can feel like they're really part of it. When you're just charging by the billable hour, it really is limited to that attorney who can bill or maybe the paralegal who could bill who feels like they're the ones offering that value to the client when we know that's just not true. It's a team effort. Everybody's involved. Absolutely. And if you think of it from a client's perspective, if I give a client a price of $5,000 for doing a piece of work, and then we decide we're going to have a meeting about that. Now, if I've got three lawyers in the room, because it's a commercial transaction, I've got an employment lawyer, commercial property lawyer, and maybe a litigation lawyer, the client doesn't mind how many lawyers are there because I've got the right people, the right talent to listen to the problem so we can do it because they're paying a rate that we've agreed, $5,000. If I tell them it's 500 pounds an hour for every lawyer, and then you we jump on a Zoom call and there's five of us sitting there, the immediate thing, the client's then adding up in his head, how much an hour is this costing me? And they'll get to an end, an end of it and say, well, three of those people didn't even speak. What were they doing there? You know, And the answer is, they're just there filling out a timesheet, writing notes, which actually with the advent of AI and tech and everything else, you could have it have the conversation transcribed and send them an email and send them that's what was discussed. They don't need to sit in a room. But this is one of the great joys and also the great frustrations of, of, of being a lawyer. Absolutely. So in your book, you talk about this idea of value-based pricing, which I think is a little bit different. And I would wonder if you could frame that and define that for us. How does that show up different maybe than a flat fee or is it the same? It's, it's effectively the same whereby you're saying, look, I'm going to scope something out. I'm going to look at what you want me to do. Here is a flat fee, but the fee is not going to be necessarily linked to the time. Quite often, lawyers do what I call hourly rates in drag, okay, where say I'm going to give you a flat fee and you're going to say, okay, and they base their flat fee on how many hours it's going to take them to do it. If it's $500 an hour, I say, yeah, I'll give you a flat fee. It's $1,500 because it's going to take me three hours. That's not value-based pricing because let's say it's I can do something in three hours that's going to save you a million dollars. Is the right fee $1,500 for me saving you a million? Well, it is if it's the hourly rate. However, actually, it might be that the fee should be $20,000 because I'm saving you a significant amount of money. It might be 50,000, who knows? But until you, we have these conversations, and again, this is something that I help lawyers to, to deal with. We've got to have value conversations. We've got to find out what clients want, what outcomes they're wanting. We don't know what's valuable to them. And so I give you an example. An employment lawyer I work with, a corporate client needed new commercial contracts of employment, and we gave them three options. We will sell you some, uh, sorry, we will send you some precedents. You fill in the precedents yourself. We'll check your homework, £2,000. We will do them for you in three weeks' time, £5,000. We will drop everything and do it tomorrow, £8,000. The client chose £8,000. They know they could get it cheaper. We told them. They wanted it tomorrow because commercially for them, it was important that this deal gets done. So the access to the talent, and and it was the same person who was going to do it on all three options, that was important to the client, the timing. So actually, we captured more value by having the conversation with the client and then doing it at the time the client wanted. And the whole thing about, and again, this is where many lawyers struggle, is value-based pricing 
is an art, not a science. Okay, there's there's no slide rule that will tell you that's the right number. I have helped lawyers price work, and sometimes I think, do you know what? We got that wrong. We still left value on the table. I have one matter where we quoted well, the lawyer wanted to quote fourteen thousand. I said, no, that's far too cheap. Let's go in at fifty-seven. The client came back by return immediately and said yes. And I think I probably went even at fifty-seven, went into too cheap. You live and learn, and next time you try and do better, which is because it's an art, because it's a science, we've got to have conversations and work out what we're doing. I think you just touched on the fear that a lot of lawyers have when they're hearing this, because that feels hard and something we're not equipped and trained to do. Like I might be thinking, I don't know how to price that. If should it be 14 or 57? How do I even get started with that? Well, that's the thing for. Billing by the hour, we need calculators. To do value-based pricing, we need courage. And the fact is we will never get that pump fist price that goes makes you go, yeah, we will never get that unless we ask for it. My employment lawyer, he didn't get his £8,000 until he asked for it. And it, he needed some coaching to say, well, come on, let's, let's do this. Let's differentiate it. Let's see what happens. And... I've had lawyers who've gone on to charge 500% more for certain things simply by asking for it. And if a client is coming to a lawyer, because I've heard you've been recommended to me by someone I know, love and trust, or you've been recommended to me by my other professional advisors, they're part sold already before they come to you. And if you're talking about a property, a residential conveyancing relocation, and if the employer is picking up the tab, for the relocation costs, then the client isn't going to be price sensitive at all about that. All they want to be in is in on the date that they want to be in on. We need to be in the property by that date because my children start school on this date. That's what's important to me, the time. Sometimes value or the price to them isn't even necessarily important. It depends. But we've got to make sure, and lawyers are terrible about this, When whenever we fly anywhere, we quite often understand first class, business class, premium economy and economy. Now, we may have clients in economy that we deliver first class services to all the time with the champagne and the canapes, and they're not paying for it. And what we've got to do is differentiate our service so that our first class customers are looked after in a first class way and our economy customers still get a competent, well-delivered service but they don't get it with all the bells and whistles and the gold plating that our first class customers should should have and expect. Yeah, that makes sense. What questions or guidelines, like are there certain pieces of information we might want to know in order to come up with that value price? Yeah. First of all, we've got to ask the, the client, what does success look like for you? A good question that I encourage people to ask is, look, if we take money off the table, how would you like me to work with you? Are you the kind of client that is happy to have everything dealt with via Zoom? Or would you like me to come around to your house and sit down and talk it through? Because how should we frame the service delivery? So that's something we want to ask. We should ask, what is the budget that you've got for this? Because you might find that a, a client is thinking, well, I've got a, quite a large budget, or they might have a very small, unrealistic budget, in which case, there's no point us saying, well, we can deliver this gold service for you if you haven't got the budget for that. We might have to deliver a bronze-type service. 
The other matters that lawyers need to take in is what I call a lawyer scoring matrix, where we've got a piece of work, it's available for us, and then we have to ask ourselves or a colleague, and I like people to work in pairs ideally, so you ask a colleague some questions, and if the answers to these questions indicate a higher price, then we've got to go higher. And these questions are something like, how busy are you, Stephanie? And you'll say, Sean, I am absolutely rammed at the moment. I can't really take any more work. Okay, well, we're going to, on a scale of one to five, you're a five busy. That's indicating a higher price. I'm then going to say, Stephanie, but can't you delegate this to somebody in your team? You might say, no, I can't delegate it. It's, you know, This one's got to be dealt with my, me. I say, how complicated? It's quite complicated. One to five, it's complicated. Okay. And then I'll say, what has the client been like dealing with you up until now? Are they organized? Are they the kind of client that will send you a beautifully crafted chronology and a list and a paginated bundle with in a PDF? Or are they the kind of client that's going to deliver a shoebox full of documents and say, would you mind sorting that out for me? And if they're a disorganized client, you're going to score them higher. And then I'm going to say, are you going to enjoy dealing with these people? And if you say no, because they're rude, I don't like them, or for whatever reason, your gut is telling you they're going to be hard work, a higher price. Now, I'll give you a real-life example. One of my clients I was working with was a probate lawyer, and the calculator, the Excel calculator for the probate said £6,000. And I said to this lady, I said, great, okay, well, we've got £6,000. I said, how busy are you? She said, I'm absolutely rammed. I said, well, can you delegate this? She said, no. I said, oh, come on. You've got a big team of eight people. Surely you can delegate this. She said, Sean, I can't delegate it. And I'll tell you why. She said, I have just left three siblings arguing over their mother's estate. Who gets the engagement ring? They're all arguing over everything. Mum hasn't even been buried yet. I know for this probate, it's going to be a nightmare. I'm going to have to have three conversations on every decision because they all hate each other. I said, okay. I said, do you like these people? Is this going to be easy? She said, it's going to be a nightmare. Okay, we're going to score it high. And I said to her, I said, how much would you like to charge for this work then? And she took a deep breath and she said, 24,000 pounds. I said, fine, price approved. She went back to the client and said, yeah, we can do this work for you. The price is 24,000 pounds. And the clients came back and said, that's fine. Now, how does she feel when she's doing the work? She doesn't mind. She's getting paid for it. She's got four times the whatever the calculator originally said. And that's really where it comes back down to. We don't need every bit of work that comes through the front door. There are some clients that we should never act for. There are other clients that we can act for, but let's get paid the, the rate, the good rate. Because why just do something because an Excel calculator sells you it's 6,000? for someone that you know is going to be really hard work? The answer is, let's price every matter individually because our, if you're going on holiday next week and a new urgent piece of work comes in, you might think, oh, I really don't want this. But if someone's going to pay you enough, you will do it. But if it's going to be someone who wants to pay, you know, bottom dollar, you know, low figure, you might think, no, I don't want it. And we've got to just accept that we don't have to do every bit of work. We just need more than our fair share of the good stuff. I love that. Once you've quoted the price, the client's agreed, 
do you advise lawyers to keep track of their time? And, you know, lawyers famously like to see how did they do? <laughs> yeah. I talk about that sometimes the time recording can be a battle that is left for another, another occasion. But usually firms will carry on doing time recording because they want to perhaps look at, is it taking someone a bit longer to do this or not? Is there a training need? Does it show resourcing issues in the business? And usually, however, once you've got away from the time being dictating what the bill is going to be, after a year or two, you'll turn around and think, I don't know why we carry on doing this. I don't know. And some teams shouldn't do it at all, really. If you think about residential conveyancing transactions, over here, these are 99% of the time, always a, a fixed price. You'll give the client a price, fixed price. Some firms still make their people fill in a timesheet. And you think, well, what for? Sometimes you might want to do a time and motion study at the outset. It's a new area of law or a new matter. How long does it take us to do this? And let's everybody make sure they time record so we capture all that time so it helps us with the base cost. But quite often, Lawyers will discount their time all the time. They think, oh, I shouldn't put this down or it took me it took me half an hour, but really I should have done it in quarter of an hour. Maybe I'll just put down 15 minutes there. And the fact that we that we have these tyranny of timesheets and we all approach it in a different way means that quite often the data that we have in our case management systems is rubbish, you know, because we're not all doing it in exactly the same way. So we don't know. Yeah. I sense from talking to you and having gotten to know you a little bit over the last year, it feels like there's a lot more firms in the UK who are digging in and doing this, and we're a little bit behind over here in the US. I'm curious if you have any lessons learned from seeing this in action. Okay. More firms looking at it. I started totting up the number of firms that I've spoken that have been at conferences or webinars or the Law Society of England and Wales, I've done a couple of events for. I have spoken to thousands of lawyers. The number that have actually got their checkbooks out paid me to do something as of today is 53, 53 firms. And quite often lawyers will go away saying, yeah, yeah, we must do something about that. And it's too hard or it's put on a partners away weekend to think, oh, we must do something about that. And the problem with value-based pricing is it's a change management project. And lawyers, A, don't like change. They're risk-averse, naturally conservative, argumentative. We all know this. Lawyers struggle with change. It is a change management program, and it is not what I call a Jean-Luc Picard syndrome moment where a CEO will say to somebody, make it so. It's got to be more than that. And that's why you, I'm a great fan of following a methodology, creating a pioneer group, creating a project group, and then delivering it. And once lawyers all of a sudden see their colleagues over the corridor getting larger fees than they are for doing what they perceive as a smaller amount of work, a little bit like meerkats in the desert, their heads will go up, they will look over and think, I want to do some of that. But in your pilot group, you need the enthusiastic pioneer penguins, first of all. I love that. And we haven't haven't even had time to get into it. So we'll probably have to just do this again and go deeper because in your book, you actually lay out this eight-point plan that really helps people. If you're interested in thinking about, okay, I'm ready, I'm bought in, 
I agree with, you know, with Stephanie and Sean, every point, I always say every point two, I build sucked a little bit of my soul away. So once you get excited by this, it's like, yeah, I want to dip my toe in that. I want to go in that direction. And I love that your book has this nice eight point plan that really helps lawyers. If you're ready to engage with it, you know, dig in and what are the steps and how do you get your clients on board? How do you get your team on board? Because there is a lot of enrolling maybe and selling into the concepts and the ideas that you have to do. Because honestly, we've just been told for so long, this is how it has to be to your point. Sometimes hard to make that shift in our brains, and that's where it has to start. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you for being my guest today. We're going to put a link to your brand new book, Ditch the Billable Hour, in the show notes. And if people want to find out more about you, is there another place they should go? Absolutely. Well, I'm a LinkedIn junkie, so please, you know, come and see me there or via the website, Big Yellow Penguin. And on my website, I have a link to something called the VBP Colony. And that's I've created an online community for people to that have gotten interested in that to come into the colony. I've got lots of speakers lined up, some of the materials in the book, some of the YouTube clips and things like that, links to things. That's all available. So come and see me in the colony. And if anybody ever wants, I'm more than happy to chat about the billable hour and its demise. If people want to hit me up, have a call. I'm I'm sitting here in sunny Oxfordshire, not so sunny today, but I'm really happy to make time available for the people who want to explore this. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.